Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Philip Prinz about the effect of a low carbohydrate diet versus a high carbohydrate diet on athletic performance, specifically in middle aged endurance athletes, which I think a number of us can relate to. And we discuss, as a result of his research, why endurance athletes still need to care about their metabolic health. We also talk about why there might be a bias against low-carb diets in academic research and the implications of what his research and what we know about the science has for athletes like us. Dr. Philip Prinz is an Associate Professor of Exercise Science and earned a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology as well as a Master of Science in Exercise Science from Georgia Southern University and a PhD in Exercise Physiology from the University of Pittsburgh. His research focuses on, among other things, the practical impact of lifestyle on metabolism and how metabolism affects health, disease, and performance outcomes. Among his many areas of expertise are nutritional ketosis, metabolic responses to exercise, and sports nutrition. And I've spoken to a couple of Dr. Prin's colleagues already on the show, including Dr. Andrew Kutnick, around carbohydrate and health and performance. And I think that Dr. Philip Prinz's research really brings another element to the low-carb space because he shares data that in real time shows the potentially detrimental impact of a high-carb approach for athletes. So I think you're really going to love listening to what he has to say. Before we crack on into the podcast though, I'd just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show, like Dr. Philip Prinz. Now I've popped a link to Dr. Prinz University faculty page and his research gate so you can check out his research projects and publications. For now though, please enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Philip Prinz. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. And as I was saying, I really, I, I love looking at research around low carb and the emerging research and of course from a metabolic health perspective it's pretty clear that this is a very good alternative for anyone who is sort of wanting to optimize particularly as we age that area of health but you know there's also obvious interest with the athletic population too though we're cautioned against yeah. it because of the performance element. So there is a little bit of this sort of, um, I don't know, uh, uh, butting of heads, or at least it seems to in yeah. that athletic space. What do you reckon? No, uh, you know, definitely. And thanks for having me on. Um, it's definitely one of those uh, subjects or topics that's still a little bit, you know, controversial, so to speak, right? I mean, the dogmatic view, obviously, within the field of exercise science and sports nutrition 
is that carbohydrates are essential and preferred fuel source. And that's that's been uh, and we can talk about why that is, but that that's really been the the dogmatic view um, for the last at least half a century. And so, I mean, it really hasn't been up until more recent that, uh, you know, obviously there's been more interest in low-carbohydrate diets, ketogenic diets, research into them. Now, obviously, there's been a ton of research, especially over the last 20 years, uh, looking at kind of the more clinical effects of, you know, ketogenic diets and low-carb diets, obesity, weight loss, diabetes, cardiovascular health, cardiometabolic you know, risk factors, yada, 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 but not a ton specifically looking at, you know, human performance. So that's kind of most of my research focus is looking at the effect of, you know, low carbohydrate diets and its impacts on human performance, uh, also metabolism and, and cardiometabolic health. So yeah, for sure, because there's there's this long-standing dogmatic view, right? And I understand that because, I mean, I, I you know, I went to, um, I went to school and, I got my bachelor's in exercise science. I minored in nutrition, and same thing for ma- same thing for my master's, and then also for my PhD, right? So I I completely understand that, and um, and uh, you know a lot of times individuals such as myself are kind of a little bit more on the fringe, right? So um, studying um, kind of studying the fringes and what's going on there, but that's obviously very necessary. We've had a lot of research looking at the effects of high carbohydrate diets and performance. And that's fantastic, but we need some more research looking at the other side. And um, if low-carb diets actually do impair performance, which is obviously the conventional thinking. Yeah, and it's interesting as well when we think about an athlete. Like, it's not like every athlete is the same. You know, you've got different sports, you've got different ages, you've got different um, outside influences on the athlete. And, of course, you've got different levels of athlete. Like, you've got your elite down, right down to your novice. So to sort of group everyone in, this is the own, not the only way. And of course, people don't think like that. Like we're very, you know, people are much more nuanced with regards to their recommendations. But I think just to blanket suggest that it's that that it's off the table for people. I think seems a little short sighted. No, exactly. And I mean, for for you know for athletes, right? So if you're you know if you're an athlete, doesn't matter like. What caliber? I mean, um, you know, recre- you know, uh, high school, um, you know, collegiate, university, uh, obviously professional, right? But it, um, the point I'm trying to make is not just professional athletes or elite athletes that are obviously very interested in their performance, right? It's you know, it's 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 all the other groups, and as you described, you know, as well, a lot of our studies have looked at you know recreational uh, athletes. I can tell you right right now those guys 100% right they care very much very deeply about their performance whether it's running cycling swimming you know uh, uh they're participate in triathlons etc they're they're very very serious about their performance and the point being is 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 the is that um obviously the conventional viewpoint has been that you know if if you want to optimize your your performance you have to consume right a high carbohydrate diet and it, which implies that obviously if you do the opposite, that's going to impair your performance and no athlete wants to, doesn't matter what level you are, no athlete wants to impair your performance. So therefore, obviously most, the vast, vast majority of athletes, right, over the last you know, couple of decades, right, they follow basically one dietary approach. And what our research has basically unfolded or uncovered is we're saying there might maybe there should be more to the dietary prescription for athletes than an exclusively high carbohydrate diet. 
Yeah. And, you know, Philip, one of the papers I looked at was related to that crossover point, which is essentially the thing which determines fuel substrate use in in athletes, right? And and you often hear that, you know, at that low intensity, we are going to be burning predominantly fat. But as soon as we get serious and want to lift that intensity up, this that fat is no longer an option. We have to start burning sort of glucose. But your paper um, sort of highlighted that that's not necessarily the case. So can we sort of like talk about that to start off with and that uh, crossover point with fuel substrate use and what you guys have found, what you looked at, what you found? Yeah, so yeah, so excellent point. Um, so there's, I mean, if, if you were to look, as I was just kind of alluding to, you know, over the last 50 years, so why does the field of sports nutrition have this very high carbohydrate mentality? A lot of that has to do with muscle glycogen, right? This kind of glycogen-centric view of exercise performance. And then, uh, so that's its, that's its own separate story. And then a lot of it has to do with this historical belief that fat is an inferior metabolic fuel, unable to support higher intensity exercise. So actually, if you go back, you can find uh, the first notion of that was a, a paper published by Krogh and Lundhard in 1920. Mm. So it's it's a one it's a it's a 100 year belief that fat is an inferior metabolic fuel, unable to support higher intensity exercise. Now that was then picked up by um, you know. Very famous, you know, exercise physiologist George Brooks, and I think it was Brooks and Mercier in 1985. So if you have like an exercise science or kinesiology textbook, right, you'll see this figure in there illustrating that crossover, uh, this crossover concept. And like you were saying, I mean, it's, it's basically in simple terms, it's just illustrating this relationship between the exercise intensity. And substrate, you know, metabolism, obviously, particularly carbohydrate and fat metabolism. So what what it's saying is that as the intensity is increasing, so as you go from low to moderate to high intensity, right, as the percentage of your VO2 max increases, your rate of fat oxidation goes down and your rate of carbohydrate oxidation goes up, which is just a fancy way of saying that the rate of the, the percent energy coming from fat is going down, the percent energy uh, coming from carbohydrate is going up. And so if you look at those those papers or that traditional crossover concept, you say, well, where's the crossover point? You'll see, well, if for most athletes, it looks like it's occurring at about 55, 60% of their VO2 max. Mm. So what that means at that intensity, which is moderate intensity, right? If it's you're exercising high, at yeah. 60, yeah, 60% of your VO2 max, 55, something like that, I mean, that's moderate intensity. So it's saying at that intensity... That's the crossover point, meaning that represents an equal split, like 50-50, between carbohydrate and fat metabolism. But then also it means once you go above that intensity, so once you go above, say, 60% of your VO2 max, the rate of fat oxidation just plummets, right? So you see this precipitous decrease in fat oxidation. At the same time, you see this precipitous increase in carbohydrate oxidation. So we, we therefore say that that exercise, especially high-intensity exercise, is carbohydrate-dependent. We're saying it's dependent upon high rates, not of fat oxidation, but we say it's dependent upon high rates of carbohydrate oxidation. Because if you look at those high intensities, so if you now go up to 70%, 80%, 90%, you look, well, according to this graph, how much how much energy is actually coming from fat? Well, according to that, to those illustrations, it's like almost 0%. 
So if you're performing high-intensity exercise, according to the crossover concept, like almost 0% or very little, right, uh, uh, energy is coming from fat oxidation. It's almost exclusively carbohydrate oxidation. So that, and again, so that's kind of the gist of the crossover concept. And then there's some other things that kind of goes along with it because what the crossover concept is saying, hey, your 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 peak rate of fat oxidation is occurring at this moderate intensity, and it cannot increase any further, right? You, it cannot increase any further if you go higher above that to meet the metabolic demands associated with exercise. But again, it's such an important point because you know this whole crossover point because you know, it warrants further scrutiny, it warrants further investigation, which is what we did because that line of teaching. And reasoning is commonly used as justification to teach people away from low carb diets. Yeah, especially for especially for athletes who are performing more higher intensity exercise, or basically for any exercise that's above that crossover point. Right. So if you're an athlete and you train or compete at basically sixty percent or higher of your VO two max, well, if you understand the crossover concept, then you go, well, my performance is dependent upon high rates of carbohydrate oxidation not fat oxidation, so therefore high-carb diets, not low-carb diets. So, Philip, because it is interesting, right? So I've got a friend, um, Dr. Dan Plews, and he is he's done a number of studies sort of looking at ketogenic diets in, a, in athletes that do that higher-intensity exercise. And in, in his studies, and not just him, because it sounds like, oh, you know, because oh, he's pro low carb. So, you know, it, it isn't just yeah. him that's seen this, but there are multiple studies now that show that performance isn't necessarily impaired by a mm-hmm. low carb diet. So, this essentially is sort of suggesting that reliance on carbohydrate, the way that the crossover point would dictate, doesn't really hold the way that we thought it did. Yeah, exactly. So again, that was what what I was describing, right? Is this traditional view? Yeah. But it seems that it seems that 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 metabolic effect is basically just an artifact of the habitual diet that's being consumed by the athlete. You know, we you know days or prior to that, and I think that was never understood, or the impact that diet or the impact that the habitual diet and nutrition had on that metabolic response and across our you know. Uh, um, uh, if um, effect, I mean, um, wasn't I think totally understood until more recently, right? Because when I mean, so the paper that you cited that was published um, on it, and people can go look that up if they want. Um, you know, we kind of reevaluate this crossover concept, and uh, based on our data, but also you know some you know some you know um, uh, from others, like for example Jeff Olek at Ohio State University. Um, we see this crossover point shifting. It's shifting yeah. off to the right for individuals who are habituated to a low carbohydrate diet. So um, you'll see in our in our study, um, the crossover point wasn't occurring at uh, sixty or say fifty five percent VO two max. But once these athletes were habituated to a low carb diet, it was occurring at actually at eighty five percent of their VO two max. So that's that was really interesting to see this kind of rightward shift uh, in in that crossover point, meaning when these athletes were, um, when we tested them, which was basically mm, six weeks into the diet or almost six weeks into the diet, at 85% of their VO2 max, which is high intensity, Mm. 
that's where the crossover point happened. So again, that's a 50-50 split, equal, equal contribution between carbohydrate and fat metabolism. Before that, it was it was all fat, right? Yes. So if you go look at the graph, if, if you look at that graph, you'll see, oh, well, the majority of the energy was coming from fat before that, and then only at that intensity. Now it's a 50-50 split. Only once you go above that, then fat oxidation was going down and carbohydrate oxidation uh, was going up, which is really interesting because – we we then we then also looked at that crossover, you know, um, uh, uh, um, you know, kind of graph or illustration. Uh, but for when these same subjects were on the high carbohydrate diet, because you might go, okay, well, at eighty five percent of their VO two max at this high intensity, that's where the crossover uh, point occurred uh, when they were on the low carb diet. So. Same intensity on the high-carb diet, what was going on? Same intensity on the high-carb diet, 90% of the energy was coming from carbohydrate, only 10% came from fat. So completely different metabolic yeah. response. Yeah, yeah. And then what are the implications of this then, Philip? Like, so, so yeah. yeah, because I I guess I asked that because it, it I mean, that sort of, not only does it challenge the conventional sort of uh, view of fuel substrate use, but obviously this has implications for metabolic health too. Sure, I mean, yeah. So the, you can think of you know um, you know a couple of different you know implications, but what we have shown is performance. You know, and we can talk if you want more deeper about some of those studies, because it's not just one study; it's a couple of studies now where we've shown. And your colleague, like um, uh, you know, um, you know, Plus, you know, showed the same thing. You know where performance is not impaired, right? On the um, on the low carb diet. So we've done performance trials looking at VO two max testing, so maximal endurance exercise yes. performance, uh, five kilometer time trials, so kind of more sub maximal endurance exercise performance, or kind of more indicative of high intensity short duration endurance exercise performance. Uh, we've looked at one-mile time trial, and we've looked at um, basically repeated sprint performance or like a hit workout or interval session uh, workouts as well. And in none of these you know, activities, you know, uh, was performance impaired on the low-carb diet. It was, it was always the same. And so obviously, so that's, that's a huge implication because, again, that provides athletes with a choice, right? Yeah. That, that means, you know, you can... You can experiment, right? As you were saying, I think earlier, right? You're, you know, each each person is basically their own, you know, end of one experiment. So, because uh, that's what you see in the studies too, right? Because well, I have the individual data, so you'll see, oh, oh, this person did better on the high carb diet. Oh, this person did better on the low carb diet, right? But when you look at the at the end of the day, when you look at the paper and you read these papers, right, you see the means, and you're comparing the means, and is there right a, stati uh, a statistical significant difference? And in none of these papers, there were, again, so meaning there's a, at least that's starting to present athletes with a choice. Hey, I here's the conventional view, but what happens when I do the unconventional now that I know that there's obviously a, a chance or probability or there's evidence out there that my performance will not be impaired? The other, the other big thing is what we have shown is record high rates of fat oxidation. Yes, I saw that in one of the other papers that we're going to discuss. <clears throat> Yeah, so it's it seems that um, you know, especially athletes, um, <clears throat> you know, they they're on a low carb diet, they train. We 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 see the rates of fat oxidation go up, you know, quite a lot. Because usually, if you look at papers where um, 
you 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 know, athletes aren't aren't their traditional like high carb diet, and you test their peak rate of fat oxidation. You know, it's for a lot of these guys who are athletes, it's like 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 grams per minute, and they they go on a low carb diet and it doubles. Yes, right. So they're well doubles or some cases even more than doubles, right? So now, I mean, one one study we did it was about. Um, 1.3 grams per minute. The other study was about 1.5, 1.6 grams per minute, and the and the 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 ones that I was referencing, I mean, they were about they were about a two, you know, the rates of fat oxidation about two grams per minute, which is the highest ever recorded, or at least in the scientific literature. And so, it, you know, it's like, well, holy moly, like, so if, if that's if that's your rate of fat oxidation, and that's interesting because that was measured at high intensity. Yeah. So that's obviously unheard of. Um, so if that's your rate of fat oxidation, you can think about what does it mean kind of like from an energy you know, standpoint, because all you, all you have to do is you go just, you just multiply it by nine, right? Yeah. So to see like, what is the KCAL, right, worth from coming from that? Yeah. So, you know, everybody who's taken a nutrition class, right, you know, right, for carbohydrate and, and protein, right, you get four KCALs per gram. Obviously for fat, it's nine KCALs per gram. So if you're saying, well, if, if you're an athlete and you're training – and you're on a you know low carb diet, maybe you get up to two grams per minute, maybe even more. I don't know. Yeah. And so then you just multiply that by nine to say, well, how, what's the uh, you know caloric expenditure per minute, or by or for you know um, not just per minute by, by by hour. Yeah. So if we're saying two grams per minute. Yeah. Well, what's that? You know, from an that's that's 120 grams per hour. Multiply that by nine. That's a that's a over just over a thousand you know kcal expenditure, right? Uh, you know, for for 60 minutes. And so that's that's kind of a you know, that's kind of a main or, or big if you're looking for practical application to so what I think one of our colleagues, um, uh, Professor Tim Noakes, um, I heard him speak about this. It's not in the paper. He 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 did this calculation where he calculated. Um, so Iliab Kachogi from Kenya, the guy who who runs incredibly fast and yes. who breaks the two hour marathon. Yeah. He was able to do a calculation. So for him, say, let's say he did go low carb, mm-hmm. which he is not, but let's say he did go low carb, and he achieves this very high rates of fat oxidation. That fat oxidation, based on you know Kipchoge's body weight, his pace, and the uh, uh, the you know the energy requirement for you know the the twenty six point two miles, that rate of fat oxidation is sufficient, right, to fuel him uh, f- uh, for that performance. So uh, that's. That's, I think, a big so what you know that that comes from, um, you know, f- uh, from this you know fat oxidation and what does it matter? And then, sure, we can talk later also about like you were saying the, uh, like, what about the health implications of that dietary choice as well? Mm. Okay, so this is interesting. So, so the practical application then of this example is that if you were able to derive. 120 grams of uh, or the energy from 120 grams of fat an hour because you're low carb. So if you're in an endurance event like a triathlon, for example, where you have these high fuel requirements over an extended period of time, you have to rely less on exogenous fuel because you're able to utilize your own fuel. Is that correct? Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's that's you know perfectly said. So you've you've just become less dependent on the exogenous administration of carbohydrate. Now we're not saying you know we're not. I'm not you know saying that. Okay, well, so if you're doing those you know very long duration events, that you know fueling is unnecessary, right? That's you know so obviously fueling is necessary, mm-hmm. 
But now the next question becomes, well, you know, well, how much? Yes. Because if you look at the traditional, the you know, if you look at the traditional approach, right? So anybody familiar like with the ACSM or any other kind of, you know, sports governing body, their fuel strategies, right? During the race in terms of, you know, carbohydrate, right? It's, it's, it's a lot. Mm. And a lot of people also don't tolerate that well. You know, a lot of GI yeah. problems associated with that. You know, it's like in some cases, some of the recommendations, you know, 60 grams per hour or sometimes, you know, more than 100 grams per hour. And if you yeah. look at some of these studies, you go, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. So what we are maybe suggesting is I think especially in a, in a, in a low carb state, you can probably get away with, with, with much less. And actually yeah. that's – I don't want to get in too much of the details, but we're kind of starting – um, we're about to start another study – looking a little bit more at this concept because you know we're kind of looking at you know um the amount of carbohydrate consumed during exercise especially when you're in that low carb state and fat adapted but also looking at this concept of um you know bonking yeah and uh you know hitting this whole hitting the wall phenomenon you know because you know people say well that's all that's to do with glycogen depletion well, you know, another counterpoint is that it has to do with, you know, hypoglycemia, right? So maybe during those longer duration events, you, you need to um, consume just a, just a small amount of carbohydrate, especially in that fat-adapted state, to prevent uh, the hypoglycemia. So that's kind of what we're going after um, and where the research is, is going next. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, of course, we, um, you're right. Like w when I look at the literature and I just, you know, with I'm talking to clients and myself, you know, like gut issues are a real problem. And it's, it's often that's the thing that takes you out of a run, you know, an ultra run or a triathlon. Yeah. It's not the fact that you haven't done the training. It's that your stomach can't sort of, you get this yeah. sort of GI issue. And, and Philip, I don't know, like when I look at the literature, if I just go back to the high intensity um, uh, sort of training studies, like I feel like the, the attention is always turned towards the research group that looks at the race walkers and, you know, and, and their and, and the findings from the race walker studies that you know clearly this shows that a low carb approach is not appropriate in in the setting and whereas these other studies like your research the research of um, I've mentioned about the blues and also Paul Lawson has done research in this space as well it's almost like these studies are not really talked about or sort of you know they don't have the same fanfare I suppose as the the other research studies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, you, you know, you're correct. I mean, you hear a lot about the um, uh, Louise Burks uh, from Australia, the famous um, you know race walking study. Well, a lot of a lot of the data they have published has been on the um, uh, race walkers. Now, it's, so I mean, they're they're Olympic, right? So uh, race walkers. Um, so I mean, they've they've you know shown in most of their studies. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a positive finding coming from that group. Um, and that's not meant to be, you know, no. a derogatory statement or, you know, being negative at all. I'm just saying I, it's, it's been, you know, usually the low carb diet is doing, is doing something negative, uh, in those, in those athletes. And, uh, you know, and we just, we, we haven't found that obviously there's differences in, in study designs and that the difference in study designs is probably explaining, some of the differences, other people might say, well, it's maybe it's because they're elite athletes. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's very hard to study elite athletes. So, I mean, kudos for her for, 
for doing that, but um, I don't agree with, and I don't understand the three week adaptation period that they've used in yeah. their in their trials. Not quite um, long enough. So that's yeah. I mean, we I, I don't I don't think so, and a lot of other people in the space would you know also don't. Um, don't think so. I mean, it's been it's shorter than the four weeks or more that it's been shown to be more optimal. So, yeah. And, and the other thing, you know, is a lot of these studies are not are you know are not control not either randomized, and they're not controlling for some other you know uh, confounding variables. So we we therefore think our our studies have more or or have um maybe maybe a little bit more weight to carry because we're um. The diets are usually isocaloric. We're controlling for body composition and also training. And when when you're when you're doing that, um, that means the the effects that you are seeing in your study is it should be diet induced, right? Because that's what you're going after in this in these dietary interventional studies. You're looking for diet induced effects. But if you're not controlling for these other things, then you know it could be you know uh, could be something else. Yeah, and I mean, I guess at the end of the day, if you're a race walker, maybe this might not be the diet for you. But for the rest of us, maybe there is there are alternatives out there. And Philip, I well, I, I would I would say I would say one more thing with that. I would go. Um, I know Tim has talked about that. He's uh, so Professor Tim knows. Yeah. He's he's um, uh, he's he looked at that study very carefully, and uh, he's pinpointed out many limitations to that study. So I would go see his, him his discussion, um, you know, um, on that because I mean he's at, once he took a deeper dive into it, I think he found many uh, issues associated with that study. Yeah. Okay. No, this is that's great intel. Thanks, Philip. And you know, I'm really interested in um, your studies looking at the middle aged cohort, which can I first say is 39 really middle aged? I mean, I mean, surely that's surely this is still just these are just young men still surely. But um, but anyway, because <laughs> you know most of us actually fit into this age bracket now, where we are the athlete that. We're not elite, but we're very serious about our sport and we take it seriously. And um, you looked at these highly trained middle-aged athletes, which were either habituated to LCHF, so at lower than 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, uh, or high-carb, low-fat. So why did you choose that cohort to sort of look at first and foremost? Yeah, so that cohort was a little bit older than our previous cohort. Um, and so, uh, part of the reason had to do with that study wasn't just looking at performance, but it also was looking at and shared performance, metabolism, and and also cardiometabolic health. And so you'll you'll see if you read that study. I mean, there's it, it's not just well here's the performance stuff, but here's some health related stuff as well. And so we thought you know it would be interesting to maybe look at kind of middle age. Again, very well trained, um, you know, middle aged athletes, right? So these these individuals who might be, who might be a little bit more insulin resistant, and see, um, you know, obviously they're still training a lot, but obviously now they're a little bit older than our previous cohorts. So especially from a um, um, you know cardiometabolic cardiometabolic health standpoint, how do they fare on the yeah. diet, right? This whole statement of, you know, can you or can't you outrun or out-exercise a poor diet, you know, it's probably, you know, you're probably still able to do that when you're when you're, when you're on your younger side, but yeah. what if you're now more, if you want to say middle age or, 
you know, um, what happens then. So that was kind of the whole uh, gist or point behind that. Yeah. And I like it as well because that is the reality for a lot of us. And I know with clients I see and, and other people I work with is that they've sort of gone on the premise that I'm an endurance athlete. I need carbohydrate. I, you know, and, and here are the recommendations of 90 to 120 grams of carbs an hour. I'm really going to try and push my limit here. Whereas the health implications of that are not often thought about. And I've seen many athletes who actually fall into um, that category of athlete, which you found in your study when they adhere to that higher carbohydrate diet, which actually wasn't overly high. I mean, it, well, it seemed high, actually. The amount of carbohydrate seemed high, but if you broke it down into the categories of what the ACSM might recommend – these athletes were only consuming about five grams per kg body weight per day. Is that that's about right, hey? Yeah, if you if you if you do you know if you do a relative calculation, you know, um, you know, if you did that calculation, then I'm gonna go with that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, but from a pers- yeah fr- from a gram standpoint, it was about 400 grams per day. Uh, percentage standpoint, you know, it was you know over 60 percent. So. Mm. Yeah. And so it's, um, and they're not numbers which are out of the realm of uh, possibility for a lot of athletes who would be following a, yeah. a high carb diet. So, can you sort of talk through the major finding that you found from that metabolic health perspective, Philip? Yeah. So, uh, one thing that was really interesting is we did CGM. So, um, so that's continuous glucose monitoring. So, you know, uh, that's, that's something that is, you know, um, being used obviously traditionally kind of more of your clinical populations, people with type 2 diabetes, right? But now general population is becoming very interested and obviously also athletic populations has become very interested. And you've seen even obviously professional athletes using it, experimenting with it. How does this, you know, you know how does this um, maybe optimize their training or what how does this change their you know fluid strategies diet etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so in any case um, yeah so um, kudos to levels health who was the company who um, you know who sponsored uh, their technology and the CGMs for that study and that 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 was a 31 day dietary intervention so 31 days low carb 31 days high carb and it's a crossover trial so meaning each participant in that study again did both diets so that's the 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 cool thing about crossover uh trials right it's each if each person in the study undergoes all the experimental conditions right it's not just if it's not just it's it's unlike others a lot of other designs where like oh you're in this group now you stay in this group right crossover designs you get to cross over and um <clears throat> so 31 days of either diet and CGM at the same time so then you can see the the glycemic response right so instead of right and that's a neat thing about CGM right so instead of just pricking your finger and knowing your blood glucose now it's like well i can i can track my blood glucose continuously right throughout a 24 hour time period and so that's obviously very valuable uh, data there's really not a lot out there on athletes i mean there's I, we can literally count on one hand the amount of you know basically CGM studies on athletes so the more more of that needs to be done. So it was very interesting. Uh, so you can go, um, if somebody wants to see the graph, you can go look at the paper. Um, but yeah, I mean, average blood glucose, median blood glucose, blood glucose variability was higher 
on the high carbohydrate diet. Or put another way, obviously, it was always much lower on the low carbohydrate diet. Um, or if you go look at the means, just like so, basically, just um, circadian blood glucose across the across the twenty four hours, right, and thirty one days, uh, average blood glucose on the high carb diet was close to one hundred milligrams per deciliter, right. So that's basically you're 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 playing with that threshold of prediabetes, and then um, on the low carb diet, average blood glucose was I think about eighty five milligrams per deciliter. So again, it's it's the mean, it's the median, the variability, you know, all reduced on the low carb diet. The other thing that was really interesting is that thirty percent of our sample um, entered this um, prediabetic glycemic phenotype on the high carbohydrate diet. So meaning their their blood glucose was so elevated on the high carbohydrate diet, not just during not just during the day, but also nocturnally as well. So at night as well, they they met that pre-diabetic, you know, um phenotype, which is between you know blood glucose between 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter. So I think I thought that was very interesting. And and actually if you do if you go if you go, if you have the individual data set, which which I had, you can you can see that it was it was almost there was a couple other people who was very close to meeting that criteria as well. I mean, they were they were like basically one cookie away from from uh, from also falling into that category. Yeah. So that that we found it was thirty percent, but just knowing just knowing the data and looking at the. The individual data. I mean, that was it, it. Could have been close to fifty or sixty percent. Mm. Did it make a difference, Philip, whether they did the LCHF first to then go on to the high carb, or did it not make a difference? Um, the order of the diets as no, to. Yeah, so we we obviously randomize them, so yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of balanced in terms of where they go. Yeah. Um. But but no, not a single participant. Um. Not not a single participant participant's blood glucose was over 100 milligrams per deciliter when they were on the low carb diet. Okay, so when they're on the low carb diet, right? Nobody nobody had that prediabetes, uh, or put another way, right? When those subjects transitioned uh, from the high carb diet, when they had when they met that prediabetic glycemic phenotype, they went on low carb diet. It was just reversed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was again, there, there's clearly something going on there, and like I said earlier, because we control for calories, and training, and body composition, you go well. What's going on here, right? It's not like their training is different, or somebody's losing or gaining weight, right? They're they're highly athletic at the same time. So what's going on here? Why why is thirty percent of these highly trained athletes developing prediabetes? On the high carbohydrate diet, obviously unknowns to them, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for you know doing the study, they wouldn't you know, they have would, known. They would exactly. They wouldn't have known. And we published a review, and kudos to Andrew Kutnick, um, who who uh, for that review he he pulled a lot of CGM data from other similar studies. Like I said, I think there's he could only find five, and actually we did two of the five. And um, yeah, it's interesting. So obviously, there 
you know, the populations are different. One study was, I think, sub-elite. One was elite. Others recreational, right? So it, it the population differs. But it seems that, that 30, if you kind of average it out, it's like that 30% number seems to hold in a lot of cases. In some cases, it's even, it, it's even much it's even much higher. Yeah. But again, hang on. It's like, it's like these are all supposedly you know healthy individuals very physically active right they they're they're not like overweight or obese they're actually very lean so why is let's just say it's 30% again obviously we need a lot more data to say what is exactly is the number of athletes who develop prediabetes um again what's what's going on here it looks like it's like i said i mean just preliminary findings that seems that seems that you know some of these athletes are not tolerating the high carbohydrate diet that well so some seem fine right so some seem fine no issue but it seems a certain subset are having issues and obviously that that's impairing their cardiometabolic health in the long term mm. and you know because of course you excluded participants who had uh diagnosed metabolic conditions so 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 this would have been a surprise yeah. I, I guess to you guys as well and do you know what their diets were like going into the study Philip, like, you know, how yeah. different was the high carb to what they would normally have? Yeah, I mean, most of, I mean, um, I don't have, you know, so I don't have, you know, uh, empirical data on that, but just, you know, talking to the athletes. So, you know, um, they're, they're all on a high carb diet before. Now, how, cl- how, how close of an exact match was it to obviously the diet that we prescribed from then? I'm not sure. It's probably not, too, not, not too different just based on conversations I had with them. Cause I mean, in these studies that we do, you know, it's easy for the athletes to do the high carb diet because they're already used to doing the high carb diet. You know, it's, it's more education you know, is, is needed when they switch over. Obviously that's, that's more of a challenging and the dietitian is, you know, coaching them how to do it, right? A completely different way of eating for them than obviously what they're, what they're used to. Yeah. And I guess, you know, a major uh, sort of takeaway that I got from that uh, study in which almost reaffirmed what I see in clinic as well is that not everyone is suited to that high carb approach and particularly as you age metabolic health is a concern so it's not so just to think that you can blanketly consume high amounts of carbohydrate because you're training isn't uh doesn't hold for you know a significant portion of people yeah exactly so we we we've i mean we've shown in that that's you know i think very novel study that um, you know, that low carbohydrate diets, right, is can definitely be used as a therapeutic strategy for, you know, helping to manage and lower blood glucose, is, you know, especially for those athletes who might be at risk for diabetes, who are more insulin resistant without impairing their performance, right? Because yes. obviously then you have to add that last piece to it as yes. well, right? Without impairing your performance. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And we haven't really talked about performance in this study. Although, well, am I right in thinking that those people who were um, metabolically more challenged, did they actually reach a higher peak fat oxidation in your study as well so they actually almost had the most to gain from from following the low carb approach yeah there was an interesting correlation association between those variables so those individuals that 30 percent with the you know hyperglycemia but again they switch over to the low carb they also see the biggest improvements so definitely something going on there that's that hasn't been explored yet um but yeah they those those uh 30 those individuals also saw 
these very you know uh, very high if not record high levels of of fat oxidation so they also had a lot to benefit. Yeah, totally. But I, I can't recall reading this actually. So um, this might not have, you might not have been able to do this, but any idea of visceral fat content and how quickly that can change and whether, like, is, is that an area of interest for? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah so we haven't done that. Um, we have, but obviously very interesting. And obviously there's a lot of other people who've, who've, looked at low carb diets and specifically you know body composition and visceral fat and that definitely seems to be a um you know a great strategy right for reducing visceral fat and but yeah we didn't we haven't measured that in any of our uh our studies uh or at least not yet again usually the again because we're bringing in <clears throat> you know these you know you know uh, and we work a lot with you know athletes um you know these individuals are you know pretty pretty lean uh you know and we we don't see much changes really. I mean, um, in body composition. I mean, usually we use biological impedance for body composition. So obviously, there's it's not DEXA or BODPOD, unfortunately. Um, but usually, I haven't you know for these different dietary studies, I haven't seen again. They're they're already so lean, so I'm not seeing all. I'm seeing I'm not seeing many people like oh this person's gaining weight or this person's losing weight. It's, there's yeah, totally. They're they're remaining weight weight stable. Yeah. 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 No, I I think I was thinking about visceral fat because the phenotype is you know sort of higher um uh, uh, poor metabolic control and you don't necessarily see see what's going on um on the inside so um hey maybe something to look at in a future study maybe you just wait we yeah, just that's... need to get more funding there's <laughs> always there's always yes. a way yeah hey um uh i'd love to just chat a little bit about your work looking at distance runners and lipid profiles um can you oh, okay. yeah do you remember this the you know the study that i'm thinking about with the um yeah. Again, it was low carb versus high carb. Can you sort of uh, chat to us um, what you did, what you yeah. found? Yeah. So that was published in the journal Nutrients, uh, not last. Yeah, I think it was last year. I think 2022, if I remember correctly. And uh, again, that's uh, with some co collaboration from uh, Jeff Olix, uh groups at Ohio State University. Uh, uh, particularly, he's one student. He's one grad student, Alex Buga. So kudos for him uh, for helping uh, uh, you know with the write up for that paper. Um, and so yeah, for that that study, it's basically was a kind of a spinoff to one of our first studies, looking at low carb, high carb, six weeks uh, on five k performance. Now, what we also did during that study is we did some blood work, then also to kind of assess their What's happening to their blood lipids and lipoproteins during this intervention period? And um, <clears throat> right, so you know, again, kind of based, kind of a spinoff from this discussion we just had. Right, it's not just about performance. You know, how is health also being modulated by these diets? Right, so we we're just talking a lot about obviously, um, you know, blood glucose. Obviously, that's 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 a big story. But, but then you know, then you also have these other you know cardio metabolic factors and these kind of more uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors, and so we looked at I think it's total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, uh, VLDL, so very low density lipoprotein, uh, blood glucose, HbA1c, so glycated hemoglobin, and then also some of the ratios like tr triglyceride HDL ratio, etc. And we've done 
we've done two studies um, looking at that, and basically what we what we found what we basically find is that the low carb diet is increasing total cholesterol, uh, LDL cholesterol, but also HDL cholesterol. So I just just remember th- this is in athletes. So it's total cholesterol goes up, LDL cholesterol goes up, HDL cholesterol goes up. But then also at the same time, the low-carb diet is deep. So that's what it's increasing. It's also decreasing usually, um, like we just talked about, blood glucose or um, uh, decreasing triglycerides, decreasing uh, VLDL levels at the same time, decreasing um, the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So this is interesting. Um, Now, I'm not a lipidologist, so I'm not going to... I don't know all the specifics there, but um, but it's 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 um, it, it does present an interesting you know conundrum in this field of so you know from a just looking at those those factors those lipids and lipoproteins right does does this represent an increase or decrease risk in cardio in cardiovascular mm, health right mm, yeah. <laughs> Because it, so you have, and that the answer to that question just depends who you talk to, right? So you have a lot of people in the a lot of people in the low carb camp will say that um, you know total you know cholesterol is you know, it's, it's not a very useful predictor, or it's you know that's um, that's not so important. So all the other stuff is going in the right direction, so therefore decrease risk. And then obviously the traditional view within the field of, you know, especially medicine and cardiovascular medicine is the whole lipid hypothesis. So which centers around cholesterol, particularly LDL cholesterol, you know, APOB, et cetera. So they will look at that and go, no, that's that's an increased risk because that that went up, right? Um on the diet. So but I mean, and, you know, to be truthful, I mean, how you I mean I don't think we we know, right? I mean, it's there's been a lot of there's been a lot of work on this topic again in your clinical populations but how much of this has been done in athletic populations right so athletes who are training um you know and 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 who are manipulating their diets especially so now somebody who goes low carb and they see increase in total cholesterol ldl cholesterol but they also see all these other improvements as well you know what? What do we? What do we? What do we tell them? You know, is 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 the effect neutral? Um, is there is their risk gone up? Is their risk gone down? Right. So I'm 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 more in the boat that their risk is their risk is going. Um, if you look at their their overall risk, it's it's decreased. Right. I mean, if if you're looking at you know cardiometabolic health and cardiovascular disease, or your your total atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk, I think there are many variables to look at. I don't know why we get stuck on one or two. Right. So again, if you're if you're <laughs> a fan of the lipid hypothesis, you usually get just get stuck on LDL. Okay. Well, that's one variable. Right. So that's one. What about HDL? What about triglycerides? What about VLDL? What about the person's body composition? What about their, like you're saying, visceral fat, right? Uh, what about their fat mass, fat-free mass? What about their systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure? Um, what about 
the what about cl different clotting factors like fibrinogen? What about uh, different markers of inflammation? And then you can also do specialized testing where you can actually see, like you do NMR um, uh, testing, you can actually see the different particle sizes, right? So instead of just reporting LDLC, you're, you're reporting LDLP. You're reporting the different LDL uh, uh, sizes. Is it pattern A? Is it pattern B? You can do you know s similar testing for HDL, right? So um, yeah, I mean, it, there's so much to look at. I mean, all of those different factors, and I'm, I'm sure there's you know a bunch more that I did not mention, right? All those factors are are important when you're when you're having discussions about you know cardiovascular disease. So not not sure why we're just focusing on one when there's so many others, and usually a lot of those other factors tend to move in the right direction uh, on the low carb diet. But again, is, is more research warranted on that topic? You know, uh, you know of course there is, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and hopefully more people will do it. But it definitely, I think that means if you are an athlete and you're listening to this and you do go low carb, right? I mean, that just warrants, right? You know, just kind of seeing for yourself, right? Um, how all these markers are changing. Yeah, yeah, for you sure. Know? And and there because there's been other there's been other pay, uh, people have published. Um, I think it was earlier this year. Uh, Nick Norovitz and his group, uh, the Lean Mass Hyperresponder. They have this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's that that idea, and there's definitely some some some, or there appears to be a certain percentage of individuals. Now that they didn't look at athletes, right? No. But but the same can you know I guess be said for some of these athletes where they do see big increases in their LDL levels. You know, so again, so at what point does it become problematic or not? You know, I'm not not sure. Um, but it, I you know. Just from our one paper, um, and I can just kind of – I'm just looking at some of the data here mm. from that study. So when they were on the low-carb diet, just to give you some of the numbers, so their total cholesterol on the low-carb diet was 197. On the high-carb diet was 153. So you can see that was about a 25% increase, but 197, right? So for total cholesterol, the demarcation line is is, is 200. So they're still below 200. Right? So you go, well, that's not – that's not too bad. And for LDL, again, this is LDLC, not LDLP, or not looking at different, you know, uh, subparticles. On the um, on the on the low carb diet, LDLC was one hundred eight milligrams per deciliter, and on the high carb diet was seventy four. So sure, it was it was lower, uh, almost like a forty percent lower on the high carb diet, but on the high fat diet was one hundred eight. You go, well, that's not that's not it's overly that's high, not high it? you know. Yeah, usually it's like dyslipidemia is like one thirty, so they're still well below, you know, the 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 whole threshold for you know dyslipidemia or at least how it will be defined. So you go well if those two were a concern, and you look at the paper, and you go well, yeah, sure, it was higher on the low carb group, but if you look at the numbers, and you go well, it's it's it doesn't even meet the definition of of dyslipidemia. No. <laughs> and then obviously you see the other benefits with with triglycerides and HDL. So that's what I'm saying. At I'm more inclined to say, you know, they're 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 benefiting, but uh, each person, you know, you know, um, you know, obviously have different responses and should evaluate that. Yeah, for sure. Now I found it really interesting, and the other interesting thing I noted was that um, when you measured uh, ketone production in the bloodstream, it didn't appear that those who were following that sort of 50 grams of carbs 
or below, which is quite low for an athlete. It didn't appear that there was a lot of presence of ketone bodies in the bloodstream. So I guess my question is, is, is that even a really good marker of a ketogenic diet in an athlete if they're utilising Oh, I'm assuming, well, I don't know, that are they using the ketones for fuel and therefore we're not going to see them in the bloodstream? Like, what are your thoughts around that, Philip? That, that's the, uh, yeah, that's that's one of the uh, hypotheses or the ideas why, you know, um, so why, for example, in athletes you, you don't see, um, you know, very high level, or not, I don't know if the word very high, but just high le- higher levels of, mm. of nutritional ketosis, right? Mm. Nutritional ketosis is usually defined as blood ketone levels between 0.5 and 3 millimolars, right? And so in the one study we did, yeah, it, it the six weeks, it averaged out about 0.5 millimolars across the six weeks. So that's, that's not you know, very high. And in the other study... I think it was 0.7 or something like that, just a little, little bit higher. That was four weeks uh, intervention. So um, again, some, some I, I know from some, uh, some of those athletes in the study, they went above, they went slightly above one. But again, if if you compare those averages to some others, again, other studies not on athletes, you see, you know, you know, greater states of nutritional ketosis. So the idea here is, yeah, I mean, for especially for these athletes. I mean, obviously, they have higher energetic needs. That obviously, those ketone bodies, you know, are are being uh, utilized, and obviously, they 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 can be, you know, uh, uh, and is being utilized, whether it's by the you know muscle tissue, cardiac tissue, and obviously also uh, from the uh, by the brain as well. Which means, as you were saying, that's just why you're seeing lower levels in the in the circulation. So, I mean, that's I mean. That's sure. It's still, it's still one biomarker, and the nice thing about a low carb diet, right? That you you can actually measure that. So it's still a biomarker, but just understand if you're an athlete, if you're not getting, if you're if you're like, hey, I'm doing everything right, right? And it's it's not it's not you know um, as high as you might expect. That's probably the reason why. But um, right, if you want to see if you're fat adapted, so sure that's obviously one way to see what's going on but another way right and, and obviously what we do in our studies is you, you come into the lab and we do these testing on you right you can do as long as you have um you know uh, a metabolic card you use indirect calorimetry right you have the mask on and you're measuring oxygen consumption co2 production and yada 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 you can measure you know carbohydrate rates of carbohydrate fat usage so now you come in and you do one of these tests, like a graded exercise test, and we see, let's calculate your rate of fat oxidation. And obviously, so if, if somebody's been low carb for a couple of weeks, a month, et cetera, we want to see kind of that, you know, you know, big increase for like here was baseline or you're on a your normal diet and now here's what it is, at least say like a doubling effect when they were on the low carb diet. So obviously that's another good biomarker that you can, you know, look at. Well, if, if if that's possible, if you have access to a lab or somewhere and to get tested. Yeah, and also go out for a long run. Do you bonk? No? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you might be fat adapted. I don't know. That's I, I hear yeah. other people saying that's not a bad field test if you don't have access to a lab. Um, well, well, exactly. Yeah, subjective, right? So, yeah. I mean, you know, you see how how you you know how you feeling. Some people say, well, they feel more energetic or. So I mean, I mean, obviously the the, the subject of experience to the diets, uh, like RPE, right? Uh, rating of perceived exertion, affect. I mean, that's that's all important, I think, as well. Um, um, for these for those kind of conversations. Yeah, for sure. And Philip, just um, 
finally on that study, you look, did look at performance. Oh yeah, yeah for the yeah for that one yeah that was that was for five k and so that was that was uh, that was an interesting one. Uh, obviously five k very very popular race you know a lot of people do five k recreationally and um, and we we got a good group of again recreational uh, runners. I mean, one guy even qualified twice for the Olympic trials, but they were all you know very <laughs> decent runners. Just a recreational runner. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, uh, but so, but I mean, most of them were doing it in sub twenty. Now, again, somebody might come back and say, "Oh, well, that's not elite, right? They're not doing it in twelve or thirteen minutes." Well, sure. So, um, but again, they're still they're representative much of a competitive recreational athlete. Exactly. Very respectable uh, times. Yeah. And the neat thing about that study is um, is we, we tested their performance actually quite frequently. So we did performance testing on day 4, 14, 28, and 42. So basically almost like every two weeks we performed another 5K. And that's that's also for somebody listening to this. Like if you want to – I mean it, it it is a pain, but – Instead of just doing pre and post testing, and if you want to do something more frequently, you get kind of an idea about the time course of the adaptation as well, and that's also actually something that's sorely needed in this in this field as well. But yeah, I mean, from a performance standpoint, it was very interesting when they were on a low carb diet. Again, this is a crossover trial, so again, each participant did did each diet. When they were on a low carb diet, their initial five k performance which was on day four, was slower. So it was significantly <clears throat> slower on the low-carb diet on that first 5K, which is interesting because people report that, right? So you have anecdotal evidence about, you know, hey, I'm a couple of days in, a week or so, and, you know, you know, you know keto flu or whatever people describe it, right? So they see this as their body is switching over uh, fuel sources and they go through this adaptation period. You know, some people are seeing a... A decrement in performance—that's valuable information. Probably don't compete right during that <laughs> during that time period. But then day fourteen, we didn't see any—we uh, didn't see a statistical significant difference in performance. However, let me just grab the paper here quickly. I want to uh, look at the mean difference. The mean difference was—they were still thirty-two seconds. So let's just say thirty seconds. They were still thirty seconds slower. Mm, okay. So again, that was not—that's not That's not. That's not it did it not it didn't end up being statistically significant, but you go thirty seconds. Well, slower, that's quite a bit I mean, over 5K. 5K. Yeah, exactly. So maybe maybe you can make a case for, you know, from a um, applied or practical standpoint, two weeks, you know, not that great as well. Uh, and then day twenty-eight. Day twenty-eight, there was basically no. I mean, if you look at the sure, there was no statistical significance. But even if you look at the means, the, I mean, it was like five seconds or four seconds, something like that. So it was there was really no difference even between the means at day twenty-eight. And then day forty-two, they're actually twelve seconds faster on the low oh, carb amazing. diet. Again, this is not this is not statistically significant yeah, yeah, if you run yeah. the p values. Yeah. But again, so each each two weeks they got a little bit faster. So very, very interesting, right? Yeah. So initially, you know, slow, you know, the performance was impaired and then a little bit faster, a little bit faster, a little bit faster. Now we stopped at day 42, you know, six weeks in, would have been interesting to see what happens at say week, week eight, week 10, week 12, but overall performance, basically not, not impaired. And that's for obviously a high intensity, short duration 
endurance events, and they ran at uh, about 82% of their VO2 max. Amazing. Do you know, Philip, it would have been interesting had you tested them at three weeks to align with the race walker <laughs> yeah. study and then to see what it was like for five. Maybe that's for a future a study. Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, but good point. But either, either way, I think we can even, even uh, um, get some idea from that study that, again, showing that that first Again, because a lot of studies in this field, it's either a couple of days or a couple of weeks. That's probably not optimal. Yeah, totally agree. So, like, I love chatting about this stuff, uh, Philip. And I think it's really relevant because you know most of us are that competitive recreational athlete who actually just want to do our best, but also be in good health as we do it. Um, you did mention another study is sort of in the works. Can you? To finish up, can you just give us any idea of some of the other research studies you're looking at that we can expect from your lab over the next couple of years? Yeah, so like I said, we're we're, we're um, we we got you know funding and we're about to start this new study looking at this concept of bonking and hitting the wall. Obviously, something if you're if you're you know uh, an, 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 especially an endurance athlete, you're all familiar with. But, you know, this is, you know, when you think about, it, well, has this actually been studied well? So it's not, not something that actually there's a lot of, you know, research in, especially like, you know, from a low-carb perspective. So, again, we're, we're, we're doing that, again, on, on triathletes. So, I mean, if anybody should, you know, be aware of hitting the wall, I mean, it's, it's those individuals. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so we're, we're, we're doing a trial and there's, there's a lot that we were adding. So it's not just looking at, it's basically time to exhaustion trials. So it's, 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 it's that it's, so yeah, sure. It's performance or in this case, right. Endurance exercise before, or specifically cycling endurance exercise performance, um, comparing high carb to low carb diets. And as I mentioned earlier too, we are administering different drinks during uh, during, uh, as you can imagine, during the event or during the time to exhaustion trial, but we're we're experimenting with not how much, right? Because that's been looked at, right? So this idea of you know just you know giving a, a large amount of carbohydrate, right, during those events, but how little? And I, and what what we're what we're thinking is it's it's probably much lower than than what most people think. Maybe it's maybe I'm which I'm basically what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to feed these people just enough glucose to maintain their blood glucose level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and so that's that's kind of the idea. Again, we're doing CGMs as well at the same time. Um, so also looking at you know maybe who becomes hypoglycemic. Um, you know, if, if, you know, where, where does that happen? When does that happen? Uh, we are, we're, we're also, um, then reversing the, uh, the possible hypoglycemia with a large bolus of carbohydrate to see what impact that has. Then the, the participants will, will do another time to exhaustion trial. So they actually do two, t they do two time to exhaustion trials. The first one, you know, until you can't go any further at about 70% of their VO2 max. And then once they reach kind of this exhaustion, we give them a larger bolus of carbohydrate, you know, to reverse the hypoglycemia. And then they have to go again about 20 minutes later. Uh, obviously, this is going to be a much shorter bout, but I think a lot, a lot is going to come out of that study. Uh, and I think, you know, it will be very valuable, uh, you know, especially for, this is more, you know, for more endurance uh, athletes. Yeah. Um, 
again, especially those experimenting with with their diet. So again, that that stuff again we're working on now. So that should hopefully be done within a year or so. We also do a lot of other work on uh, ketones, exogenous ketone supplements. Yeah. And so we we do that a lot with other you know collaboration with other people. Um, we're actually doing a study right now looking at a chronic keto, a chronic exogenous ketone supplementation on exercise performance. Um, we're doing some other follow up work looking at acute interventions as as it comes to different energy bars. So for example, high carb energy bars versus lower lower carbohydrate or higher fat energy bars. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the stuff that we've, you know, um or at least some of the stuff that we're kind of currently working on with the uh with a lot more hopefully planned uh if you know down the line. That sounds awesome, Philip. And in fact this morning I was just talking to Heel Poffe, I think it's how I say his last name, about exogenous ketones okay. and sleep and recovery. So um super interesting field. Can you let us know how so obviously I will put links in the show notes to the studies that we talked about today. How else can uh listeners uh get a heads up on your research? Yeah, I mean, I'm not too good with so uh, I haven't been doing that great with social media. So, I mean, I I am on Twitter, so I don't know what my Twitter hand, uh, Twitter handle <laughs> even is, but it's it's <laughs> but if you if you sure if you type Philip Prince, you'll you'll find my Twitter or should find my Twitter profile. And uh, again, sorry, I'm not that active, but I usually do try to post, "Hey, here's a study we just did and here it was just published." So, um that's probably the best place to to kind of if you're interested in this kind of stuff and just trying to see any new work or publications now our collaborators that we work with like professor tim noakes from south africa um andrew i'm also actually originally yeah yeah uh, yeah andrew uh dom diego stino um those guys are you know pretty active on social media so um uh, and they obviously also share a lot of the work that we do. So those those are some you know good people to check out as well. Yeah, no, that's great. I was going to say that, and and I didn't. And you, of course, you're originally from South Africa, Philip. Is that yes. how is that how you are um, sort of involved <laughs> with uh, Professor Noakes and and things like that? Was that just yeah. a coincidence? No, that's so. That's that's kind of the well. That's a big big part of the connection. The fact that. Uh, you know, I grew up there, and yeah. um, I I came to the I came to the states in two thousand and five. I think I came on a tennis scholarship, so I played tennis competitively, and uh, <laughs> and I actually I actually saw him when I was much younger. Um, I had problems with uh, with cramping, and my my parents forced me to go see <laughs> go see <laughs> Professor Noakes. So he was he was a you know sports scientist and obviously physician in uh, in uh, uh, in Cape Town, which is you know where we where we lived. And I I forgot even you know what he said and what advice he gave me. Right, uh, that was that was too long ago. But yeah, so um, but yeah, I, I we connected. Um, a while ago, when he switched over, I think most people, are, a lot of people, are familiar with his story. Yeah. When he switched from high promoting high carb diets to low carb diets, and kind of soon after that is when we became connected. And I told him I'm, in, you know, I'm starting to do research in this space, and we started to collaborate. And 
a lot of the stuff we talked about, you know, now, you know, uh, you know, in this podcast, you know, we work very closely, you know, together. Uh, the study design, making, you know, making sure we have some, you know, you know, novel and highly impactful uh, studies. That's awesome, and clearly um, successful in that space. Because I mean, I, these studies were great. Philip, thank you so much for your time this morning, your afternoon. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, Mickey. All right, team, hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed chatting to him. And of course, I certainly am a fan of thinking about metabolic health, particularly as we age, and of sort of dispelling the notion that it doesn't matter what you eat as long as you train. Because we now know that that, well, we have known probably for a while, but this is just further evidence that that's just not the case. All right then, so have a great week. Next week on the podcast, I talk to Peter Sterling about the allostatic stress response. Such a great conversation with the renowned expert in this field. And don't forget that Monday's Matter registration closes this Friday, 22nd of September. So if you were looking for a way to sort of jumpstart your health goals coming into this next season, now's the time to join up. All right, you guys can catch me over on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at Mickey Willardin, Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition. Head to my website, mickeywillardin.com. Sign up to Monday's Matter. All right, talk soon.